Father, thank you for the gift to gather this morning. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray that as we look at what your word says in these four verses in Mark 13, that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear. Give us understanding. God, we pray for our church that you, by your grace, would continue to build your church. As we enter into a new year, Lord, we are grateful for all that you did last year, and we are anticipating what you will do this year. Thank you for sustaining us, for providing for us. Thank you for maturing us as disciples, where we pray that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you, and that others would hear the gospel and embrace it. God, we pray for Wes and Mariah Bruning as they enter into this new season of life with baby Mila. Thank you for allowing the delivery to have gone well, that both seem to, to be healthy. Lord, we pray that Mila would continue down the path of health. She had to go back to the hospital for jaundice. Lord, we thank you that she has been released since. God, we pray that you would give the prunings energy, that you would give them sleep. Pray that this would be a time where, as they feel perhaps exhausted, that they would all the more depend on Christ. Lord, we pray for those in our congregation who can't be here today because of COVID. Think of the Cokers. Lord, we pray that they would have a speedy recovery and anyone else, Lord, would recover quickly. God, we pray for Covenant Community Church in Newark, a fellow church that proclaims this gospel that we affirm. Lord, we ask that you would allow them to see fruit. We ask that you would keep them healthy. We ask that they would be a gospel outpost in their community, and that there would be much fruit. Lord, now as we look at this, protect us from distractions. There's a million things that we could focus our minds on. We ask that you would help us to, to focus our minds on your word and that we'd be changed by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you don't know, my name is Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Citizens Church, and the text that we're in this morning is Mark 13, as Maggie read, verses 24 through 27. And if you are looking for that in your Bibles, that's about three-fourths of the way through. It's in the New Testament. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't have a Bible, then you're welcome to just look at it in your bulletin. One of the things uh, that I've been doing recently is listening to audiobooks, and the, the book that I just finished was The Hobbit. And if you're going to listen to an audiobook, you need to listen to the one that Andy Serkis does. He's the one who does Smeagol's voice, and his voices are unbelievable. It was really enjoyable to listen. But one of the things, as I'm listening to The Hobbit, Danielle and I said, you know what, let's, let's watch The Hobbit movies. And so we went through The Hobbit movies over the last month, and I really like those movies. I know that there's a bit of a debate in the Lord of the Rings fandom that they don't like The Hobbit movies. I like them. I really enjoyed them. But if you read The Hobbit or if you watch The Hobbit, you know that there's more of a story afterward. That there is the Lord of the Rings. There's the Fellowship of the Ring. There's the Two Towers. That there's the Return of the King. And the Return of the King in that book, as Sam and Frodo journey toward Mount Doom to destroy this ring, to throw this ring into the fires of doom, 
they, there's a portion that describes how difficult the journey has been. And if you've seen the movies, it's when they're up on the mountains and they're looking out at all the destruction and they're just exhausted and they still have a long way to go. But in the book, we read this. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tour, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the, out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Now, for a moment, his own fate and even his master ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. As they're heading up toward Mount Doom, they see all the destruction and all of the war that's going on. They're exhausted. They've been beat up. If you guys have seen the movies, you know what scenes I'm talking about. And he looks out, Sam does, and he sees a twinkling star. And for a moment, he's filled with hope because he knows that beyond that star, there's everlasting light. And early January can feel like a forsaken land. Read about this forsaken land here in this passage. Early January can feel like that. In fact, psychologists have actually called early January the post-Christmas blues because all of the hope that we had for a Christmas season, all of the hope that we had for a new year, it falls flat. The hope and joy that we thought would last didn't. And we begin to realize that we are back in the real world. We have to go back to work on Monday. And it's the 8 to 5. And everything still seems to be as it was before the Christmas season. Marshall Mathers would say that we snapped back to reality. And so we recognize that January can feel like a forsaken, desolate land. This isn't uncommon, but it points out that our hope was never meant to be in a holiday. It was never meant to be in a season. It was meant to be in a person. And as our text will show today that we can, in fact, have great hope because the Son of Man is coming back for His people. The Son of Man is coming back for His people. Therefore, we can have great hope. And that hope is not rooted in a holiday or the things that a holiday may bring, but it's rooted in the hope that we have that Christ is returning. And as we look at this, if we... If we wrestle with this passage, my hope is that it will keep our hope rooted in the only thing that can really sustain it. We put it in other things, whether that's people, or whether that's holidays, or whether that's events, whatever that is, those things cannot sustain our hope. In this passage, I believe Jesus is sharing with us the only thing that can, him and the promise that he has for his people. And so we've been going through Mark so the, the theme throughout Mark has been God restoring his wayward people. And so Mark 13 is where we've been for the last few weeks. And Mark 13, without a doubt, has been the most difficult chapter when it comes to putting together what does this say and how can we pull out 
not just how can we get past the gray areas where there's debate and how can we pull out the, the core truths that we as followers of Jesus need. Mark 13 is known as the Olivet Discourse. We see this in Matthew, we see it in Luke. But in Mark 13, we see in the first 13 verses, just by way of recap, we see Jesus telling his disciples as they're walking out of the temple, the disciples looked up and said, look at the magnificent buildings. Look how big the stones are. And Jesus tells them that all of these stones will come down at some point. The temple will be destroyed. He tells them that. And the disciples ask Jesus, when will these things, and that phrase, these things, I'll say a few times in this passage because I think it's important for us to understand. But they ask when these things will take place. And so Jesus gives them some signs. He shares with them, here's some signs to know when these things are getting ready to take place. And he says there'll be false Christs, there'll be false prophets, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, there'll be persecution. And he tells his people to be on guard. He says, endure to the end. And then last week we looked at verses 14 through 23, and Jesus shared more signs. He mentioned this phrase, the abomination of desolation. And we looked at that and we said that oftentimes these phrases, because that phrase comes from Daniel, and oftentimes these phrases have short-term, long-term, and end times implications. And so we looked at the short-term Antiochus Epiphanes in 186 BC, entering into the temple and doing abominable things and bringing desolation. We see it in the long-term with General Titus in AD 70, him entering in, the Roman army entering into Jerusalem and destroying the temple. And then we see some potential room for eschatological or end times claims and fulfillment here with the man of lawlessness that we read about in 2 Thessalonians 2. So Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation. And then he also talked about this massive tribulation that's going to take place. And what we talked about was General Titus as he entered in in AD 70 and he destroyed the temple. At that time, it was right around the Passover. And so Jews from all over the place were coming into the holy city and they let them come in but they didn't let them leave. And 1.1 million Jews were killed in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, either by the sword or by slow starvation, because they wouldn't let them leave the city, they wouldn't let them get resources, and they slowly perished. However, many Christians during that time were spared because they heard Jesus talk about this, said that when you see the abomination desolation standing where you ought not, flee to the mountains. And so they heard him, and when they saw General Titus coming in, they recognized, oh, this, this might be it. Let's flee to the mountains. So they took Jesus' word seriously, and because they did, they were saved. And so now, today, I know there's a lot of recap, but today we're looking at these four verses that take place after these things that Jesus was just describing. He elaborates on what to expect after this tribulation, after these things. We see that the disciples asked him when the temple would fall, and he answered them. He said, it's going to happen within this generation. He says that in verse 30. We'll get there here in just a couple weeks. And then he says that there's going to be false Christ, there's going to be false prophets, and, and we recognize that these have existed in every generation. Those who have claimed to be the one that you should trust. Those to be, who would claim to be the one that will give you what you need to, to thrive and to flourish. So that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and we just mentioned that war that took place. It's called the Jewish War from 66 A.D. to 70 A.D. That was fulfilled. Persecution and tribulation, again, the over a million Jews that were killed. That's a great persecution and tribulation that was fulfilled. Saw the abomination and desolation that he talked about, General Titus. 
And so now, last week, I shared the phrase by Martin Lloyd-Jones about how if when his people leave, if they feel just a little less dogmatic and a little less certain about what they believe, how these things will shake out, then he will have succeeded. Just like to reiterate that because this, again, is a passage that faithful Christians have disagreed on. This passage, I'll share with you where I stand on it today, um, but there are a couple options where a strong breeze comes around and I may slightly think something different. And so there are faithful brothers and sisters who have wrestled with these and who have come to different conclusions, and I'll share with you some of those. But I think regardless, regardless of where you stand in that debate, we can all agree that it's helpful to know the three things that you'll see in your bulletin. The sign of Christ's return, the nature of his return, and the primary purpose of his return. Calvin, when he's talking about these prophetic events, he mentions this. He says, well, our Lord heaps upon a single generation every kind of calamities. He does not by any means exempt future generations and future ages from the same kinds of sufferings, but only enjoins the disciples to be prepared for enduring them with all firmness. And so although there's debate around these passages, we can all agree that some of these things we may even face in our lifetime, and therefore we need to endure, and we need to stand firm. And one of the ways that we'll, that we'll, we'll be equipped to do that is by knowing the signs of Christ's return, the nature, and the primary purpose of his return. So those are your three points, and I will jump in, and I have a lot of notes. So I will try to get through them in a timely manner, but there's a lot here. So the sign of his return, that first point in your bulletin. We see, starting in verse 25, but in those days, after that tribulation, Jesus is describing what I believe to be his second coming. Ernest Wilhelm Theodore Hermann Hengstenberg, what a name. If anyone is looking for a name for their next son, I will pay you to name him that. Ernst Wilhelm Theodore Hermann Hengstenberg talks about prophecy, and he says that prophecy is concealed definiteness. Concealed definiteness. It's like looking at a, a mountain range from a distance, and you see the different peaks and valleys. It's two-dimensional at that point, but as you get closer to it, you begin to see, okay, there, those peaks and valleys are there, but that peak is a lot further away from the peak behind it and that, that other peak is right next to it. I didn't realize, and you start to realize that these things take place, these things are there, but they might be spaced out further than what we realize. So Ernst, don't need to say his whole name, Hengstenberg says that it's concealed definiteness. We see it, but certain aspects of it are still concealed. But here's what we need to know about what Jesus is saying here in these verses. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus is making two points regarding his return. The first is that it has a set time. It has a set time. He says, in those days after that tribulation, the tribulation there that he's talking about is the destruction of the temple by General Titus in AD 70. Now we've said again that there could be another tribulation afterward, a end times fulfillment of this, that concealed definiteness, that, that mountain range in the distance. 
However, at the very least, we see that the days that he's speaking of, that tribulation, talking about when he comes back, we are in those days because it's after that A.D. 70 tribulation. So he says, in those days, after that tribulation. So any time period after A.D. 70 is what he's getting ready to describe. So we're, we're in that time period now. He says, these things, the destruction of the temple, and he goes on to say that the, the signs that we're going to see are going to be the sun being darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So, it has a set time, one. And then also, number two, it will be a cataclysmic event. It will be a massive event. It will be known by everyone that something massive is happening. There's cosmic language being used here. And to be fair, one of the other arguments when it comes to these passages would state that this cosmic language has been used by Old Testament prophets before. And that argument has a good point. Joel uses it, Amos uses it, Isaiah uses it, Zephaniah uses it. I mean, we, we see this cosmic language being used before to bring about judgment on a nation. However, I'm more inclined to understand this language as describing the new heavens and the new earth being formed at Christ's return. If we look at Revelation 21, as John describes this new Jerusalem, starting in verse 22, we read this. Before I even read it, this is one of the angels showing him the new Jerusalem. It's, if you read, this is the passage where we see the pearly gates and the streets of gold. There's, it's a magnificent uh, description of this new Jerusalem. But in verse 22, we see John say, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so when we read about the sun being darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, I think it's worth considering that this is the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. The powers of heaven being shaken, there's new creation happening. There's no longer sun, moon, stars, because as John said here, there's no need for it because the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. So when Jesus talks about his return coming after the tribulation, after this time of tribulation that we talked about in AD 70, he's saying anytime after that, these things can take place. And we are living in those days where these things can take place. And he is coming back. Here's what we need to know about this, is that he is, in fact, returning. Christ is coming back. And when he does, we will know it. It will be a cataclysmic event. His return will have an effect on all of creation. And he will make all things new. So for us, are we living as if Christ is coming back? And when I, when I ask that, it's just a general question, but to put boots on the ground for it, are we marked by a hope in Jesus, despite what's going on? Some of us have been wrecked already in 2022. 
Some of us have seen difficult things already. For some of us, 2021 was extremely painful. Came with a lot of challenges. As people look on our lives, we marked by hope in Christ. Another way to live like Christ is returning is to live a lifestyle of repentance. Are we harboring sin or are we confessing our sin? Because Jesus could return at any time. Are we confessing our sin? Is there sin that we need to let go of? Is there sin that we need to begin fighting that maybe we haven't been fighting because we've been lax at the idea of Christ returning? Maybe you're in the room and you're not a Christian or you would, wouldn't consider yourself one at this time. There will be a time when all the opportunities to embrace Christ, all the opportunities to place your hope in Christ and his return, when all of those chances will be exhausted because he will return and we don't know the day or the hour. So today, what is your hope in? As a church, Jesus' return impacts our own worship. We see this every week as we take the Lord's Supper. That's why we do it each week, to remind ourselves that he is coming back. In 1 Corinthians 11, which we read nearly every week when we do this, says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is to show us, to remind us that this Savior that we have, whose body has been broken for us, whose blood has been shed for us, he is coming back to get his people. The signs of his return will be noticeable. It will have an impact on all creation. All things will be made new. And so we now see not only the signs of his return, but now we look at the nature or how he will return. So look at verse 26, if you would. Verse 26 says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So this Son of Man language, who is this Son of Man? Some say that pertaining to Jesus, that we see Son of God, to imply his divinity, son of man to imply his humanity. And that's not unreasonable, but I think this son of man terminology is better understood with Daniel. Again, going back to Daniel, Jesus has referenced Daniel before in this passage and he references him again and he's referenced himself as the son of man previously in the gospel of Mark. So this is not the first time that Jesus calls himself the son of man, but he's referring to Daniel seven, where we read Daniel saying that he saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. So this one who's coming in the clouds that Daniel talks about, that he gives him the title of Son of Man, Jesus has said earlier in the book of Mark that he's the Son of Man, and he says it again here as he describes the Son of Man coming in clouds. So when we see Son of Man, we think Jesus, but we should also understand that to be fulfilled prophecy as Daniel the prophet was talking about. And Jesus is now saying, I am the one who's going to fulfill that. But then we have to ask the question of how? And the text answers that. We see two descriptors of how Jesus will return, what the nature of his return will be. We see that it'll be with great power and it'll be with glory. When Jesus returns, it'll be greater power than earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, greater power than tornadoes or wildfires. We've seen some headlines of wildfires that got out of control in Colorado recently. 
feel like we see them every year with California. We've seen tsunamis, we see hurricanes each year, these massive events where whole towns are evacuated. Get out. Get out of Dodge or else you will die. Jesus is coming back with greater power than any of those events are able to muster up. Consider Luke's account. Luke talking about the same passage, this parallel passage. Luke talking about it. He says, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. We see distress of nations. When Jesus returns, we see perplexity. What is happening? Roaring of the seas and waves. We see people fainting with fear. That's how powerful this event will be. People are unsure of what is happening to the world. I've already put before you that I think it's the new heavens and the new earth. So we've never experienced the new heavens and the new earth. So when all of it's being recreated, all of it's being transformed, people are going to be wondering what in the world is, is happening. Jesus' return will be marked by great power, but it will also be marked by glory. So we read about the glory of God in Revelation 21. Glory gives light, and that's why there's no need for a sun or moon or stars in this new creation. But it's also worth noting that as we talk about power, oftentimes when we think about great power, we think corruption. We've seen enough examples of that in documentaries and movies, books, articles, social media posts. We see the 24-7 news cycle. It seems like there's always another powerful person who gets in trouble for being corrupt. And we long for incorruptible power. We get excited about it every four years. We've got our candidate. We want someone who is a good leader, who is incorruptible, who's able to provide us what we have hoped for. And when Jesus comes, he will come with great power. It will be unlike anything we've ever seen because it will truly be incorruptible power. In a word, it will be glorious. This new heavens and new earth will be glorious. Going back to Revelation 21, John describes, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This power that Jesus comes with will be truly incorruptible and it will be glorious. But it'll also be glorious because this new heavens and new earth will be unlike the current earth that we live in. We see the effects of sin all around us. It won't be there. It will be magnificent. So the nature of Jesus' return is powerful and it's glorious. And Christian, if we're honest, these are two things that we wrestle with every day. We want power. We want glory. I was talking to somebody just recently about how, if you stop and think about how much we do throughout the day that is because we're trying to impress somebody else. How much of what we do is derived from the desire to impress someone else? It's embarrassing. 
I fall into that. It's just true. We desire glory. We desire the approval of others. We want glory. We want power. We, we don't want to bend our knee to anybody. And yet, Jesus, coming with great power, tells us to, to bend our knee to him, this glorious one, that that will lead to our flourishing. That will lead to life everlasting. We're all tempted every day to define power and to define glory in the way that we want to define it or in the way that someone else that we look up to defines it. And yet when we look at the life of Christ, who is God incarnate, who is all-powerful, he allowed himself to be persecuted. He was hung on a cross. His life was, did not appear in our eyes to be a glorious one since the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head at night. To follow Christ is not going to look like the promises that our society wants as health, wealth, and prosperity. There will be persecution. And to follow Christ means following one who is all-powerful and one who is all-glorious and being satisfied in his power and his glory and not trying to accumulate it for ourselves. And so where is our hope placed? Is it placed in the one who is all-powerful, the one who is all-glorious, or is it placed in some other definition of power, some other definition of glory, trying to impress someone else, trying to define glory our own way? Where is our hope placed? If 2021, or if you're currently in a season where it's just painful, I would encourage you that Jesus, his returning with great power, is something worth hoping for, something worth looking forward to. Because his power, as we said, is stronger than all these natural events that we listed off there. His power is also greater than illness, greater than any diagnosis you may receive, greater than any evil we may encounter. His power is greater than death. And so no matter what this world can do to God's people, we know that he has the final word. And if we are in Christ, then we are raised with him. We were brought into his kingdom. So the sign and the nature of his return are well and good. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the primary purpose of his return? And so with that, look at the third point in your bulletin. We'll look at verse 27 for this point. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So there are multiple purposes for Christ's return. Be um, foolish not to acknowledge that. Some are to fulfill prophecies, some final judgment, establish his throne, overthrow evil. You can, the list goes on. But the primary purpose, the primary purpose provided by this text is to gather his elect, to gather his people. We talked about that term elect last week. Now it can be a controversial term. Just, just run with this understanding of elect, that it's God's people. He is coming back for his people. If you want to know more about that, just read our statement of faith on the back there as it kind of elaborated a bit more on that. Be happy to answer any questions that you may have pertaining to that. But for this, for the purpose of this point, we must know that Christ's 
coming back. His primary purpose in coming back is to get his people. He will not leave or forsake any of us. He is coming back for us. Consider Matthew's account. He says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now that trumpet call language, that was one of the, one of the phrases that made me land where I am on this passage. And so we read this trumpet call that happens when Christ returns. And we see this phrase used elsewhere. We see it in 1 Corinthians 50, 15, 52, where we read Paul write, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. First Thessalonians 4, where we see it again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And at that trumpet call, when we, when we see, when we hear that trumpet, Matthew and Mark are both in agreement that God's angels will go out and collect his people. Now that term angels, if you look at the original Greek, can, can also be translated as messengers. So however you want to take that, whether it's God's actual angels, whether it's God's people as messengers with the gospel, going out and collecting more people to him, what we can rest knowing is that every single person who confesses the name of Christ will be gathered in by Christ when he comes back. No one will be left. We also see him talk about from the four winds. So this phrase, four winds, don't be tripped up by it. It's just north, south, east, west. North wind, south wind, east wind, west. It's, it's referring to all, all creation. So there's not going to be a place where any Christian, you may be locked up in the worst place ever. God will not miss you. He will not leave you. Every square inch of his creation, he will come back and he will gather his people. We see that from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, which should, should give us some imagery, at least of fishermen. Jesus said to his disciples, I will make you fishers of men. Some of them were fishermen. And they cast out this net. And they would take the weights from these large nets. They would cast them as wide as they could go. And as they fell into the lake or as they fell into the ocean or the sea, then they would gather in fish. But it would be as wide as the net could go. And Jesus says, when he casts his net out, it's going to be across all of creation, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, to bring his people into this new Jerusalem. The primary purpose of Jesus' return is to gather his elect, to bring his people home. He's preparing a place for his people. Christian, Jesus is coming back for you. Jesus has not forgotten you. Jesus sees any suffering that you may be experiencing. And he is coming back for his people to, to bring them out of the effects of sin and bring them into a kingdom where sin cannot cross the border. And the effects of sin cannot get over the walls. Family, this is a, this is a good opportunity for parents, if you have kids, to make them aware of the glories of this new creation. Make them excited about this new creation that Jesus is bringing his people into. If you this morning feel alone, which can happen, especially around Christmas and New Year's, 
take comfort knowing that as Christ comes back for all of eternity, you will never be alone. I don't know what the Lord has for each of us. I don't know if it is a life with lots of friends and close companions or if it's a life where you feel kind of like you're on an island, but I would assure you that regardless of which spectrum that you're on or may feel that you're on at this moment, Jesus, when he comes back, is the friend that is better than any friend. It's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And you will be with him for all eternity. You will never be alone. Take comfort knowing that he sees where we are and knowing that he's doing something about it. So whether it's January, whether it's some other time of the year, if you feel like this fallen world can be a forsaken, can feel like a forsaken land. As we read about in Lord of the Rings where Sam and Frodo are going out there, Sam looks over, sees this forsaken land. If you feel like this world can feel like a forsaken land at times, take comfort knowing that it's not. It's not forsaken. Christ has seen our sufferings. God has seen us and he has done something about it. He has sent his son to address the effects of the fall. And his son died on the cross, bearing our sin. He lived perfectly a righteous life. The life that we were called to live, but we fell short of. The life that even if we, from this moment on, decided we weren't going to sin, somehow were able to accomplish that, we would still have past sin. And so Jesus coming not only takes away our sin, but he gives us that righteousness that we need. And God has seen us. He has provided that Savior, and we can have hope because the Son of Man is returning for His people. He didn't just come once to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died, but He's now going to come back again to bring us into the kingdom that He has been preparing for us. This is good news. We can face trials because we have hope. We can face those trials knowing that the one who allows us to go through them has not turned a blind eye to us. We can face difficulties that 22 may bring us, 2022 may bring us, or perhaps already has brought, and we can have a proper yearning for restoration. That's what we desire. I mean, we're made in the image of God. We desire a relationship with Him. The effects of sin should go contrary to our desires. We should recognize that there's something wrong. And so when we look out there and we see the fallenness and we get frustrated with it, you should be reminded that God has done something about it. And that should bring us great comfort, knowing that that something about it has been done, but there's more to come. He's going to bring us into it. The Son of Man is returning. This is reason for great hope. But this great hope that I'm putting before you is only for those who are in Christ. The great fainting with fear that we read about in Luke's account of this passage, that will be for those who are not in Christ. But if you are in Christ, then when he returns, we can have great comfort. If you are confessing your sin, if you depend on Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, as your Master, as your King, if you're following him, then you can take great comfort at his return. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for the good news that you are sending your son to come back. Thank you for the good news that you have created a plan of salvation. We ask that you would help us remember it. As we go through trials in 2022, help us remember that we can take hope knowing that Christ is returning for his people, that you have not forgotten us, you have not forsaken us. We thank you for that. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.